Welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host on the other side of the looking glass post-inauguration, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What's going on, Tim? What's going on, Brian? It is good to be post-inauguration. All of the National Guard troops appear to have been removed from Capitol Hill, so we're getting a little bit back to normal. My dogs miss them, but um, I'm not (laughs) sure much else in the neighborhood does. I was going to say they might be the only ones. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to Embargoed. We are uh, very happy to be here, very happy uh, that the United States is still going concern. Uh, We're very happy, as Tim said, that um, the Capitol, things are a bit calmer on the Capitol than they were uh, the last time we recorded. Um, Thank you again for joining us uh, here in late January, several days removed from the inauguration of President Biden. Uh, And not surprisingly, I think that is going to be our focus today is... um, Last time, we obviously spent a few minutes reflecting on what had happened at the Capitol with the riots in early January. There has been, I think it's fair to say, there was a frantic amount of activity that that occurred in the last two weeks of the Trump administration pre-transition. So that is what we're going to focus on today, is taking stock of many of those actions and trying to make sense of it and, and figure out what was symbolic, what is real, what may stay, what may go uh, broader impacts, etc. Uh, so that's going to be our focus today. Um, let me just dispense with, with all the, the normal introductory notes. So we're not giving legal advice. We're not discussing any confidential information. All opinions are mine and Tim's. So if you don't like what we're saying, blame us, don't blame anyone else. Um, and as always, if you're a fan of the pod, please subscribe. Uh, you can catch us anywhere, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube. Uh, please give us a rating if you're a fan, five-star rating, hopefully. Um, and uh, spread the word, 2021 uh, embargoed, uh, back for year two. And uh, again, it's a, uh, it is a new day in many ways. Uh, and, uh, and, and we, I think, are relieved, as many are, for that. So that is really what we're going to focus on today. Um, so we have a lot to cover. We're going to do this. Um, we're going to do this lightning round style essentially, because uh, I think many of these topics we're going to come back to at some point. Many of them are, um, I wouldn't say they're more than gestures. They are they are actions that were taken, but it's unclear sort of what the legal or policy implications of these are uh, long term. So we're going to we're going to you know comment on them a bit uh, and then sort of move on. Uh, lots, lots to cover. So the roadmap here is, is as follows. We are, as I said, going to kind of run through a catalog of, uh, what just happened, uh, over the last couple of weeks, which was a lot. Uh, and I think even more so I lived through the Obama to Trump transition when I was still in government. And there was a lot happening in December, January of that, of 16, 2016 into 2017. But I think, Nothing compared to what we just saw the last several weeks. Uh, and as a, a theme that Tim and I have been discussing pretty um, regularly over the last few months is the idea that the outgoing administration was going to try to tie the hands of the incoming administration with respect to critical 
policy issues. And I think that is exactly what we saw, uh, lots of attempts to do that. And so that's a lot of what we're going to talk about in the next hour or so. Um, so the roadmap is, and I, and I won't get into too much detail because we're, we're covering a lot of topics, but we're going to start with Cuba, uh, not starting with China. Then we will hit a couple of China topics. Um, we'll swing through Iran and Russia. Uh, we're going to go take a look at Yemen. We don't talk about Yemen very often, but some pretty consequential stuff just happened with respect to Yemen uh, in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up with some more China and then uh, a couple of sort of more generally applicable actions that were taken. Um, and so uh, before we get started, Tim, any, any thoughts before we kick off here and, and run through uh, our, our lightning round recap of the final frantic couple of weeks of the Trump administration? So I'm feeling optimistic, um, you know, and and you the, you are national, a pretty optimistic guy by nature, I, I would say. I so. am, but this is I'm particularly optimistic now, in, in part because, you know, this this agenda that you just laid out has lots of different um, parts to it, and it, and they're not all China. And I do think that in the coming years we're going to see sanctions used as a a much more. Um, a much more discreet tool to go after particular issues and not just kind of a, a hammer with every problem being the nail, particularly when it comes to China. I, I think we'll probably see much more nuance when it comes to China in the, in the coming years and much more use of sanctions outside of China with respect to particular issues. And so I'm, I'm glad that we're expanding the map this time. And, and I think that that's probably a sign of things to come. I also did want to circle back to the National Guard. We were very happy that they provided the protection that they did, but um, very sad that they had to be here uh, to do that because um, it really was a strange time in US history and I hope we don't see it again. Agreed, uh, indeed. Uh, so with that, we will pause for our favorite sound effect and we'll kick off our lightning round recap episode of the, again, frantic final weeks of the Trump administration. So two, two quick introductory notes here before we get into substance. So number one, there's a lot we're leaving out. There was too much that happened in the last few weeks. We're not going to cover everything. Uh, this would be like a four hour show if we tried to do that. So there's many, many things we're leaving out. There were many designations, there were entity list additions, there were um, all kinds of things happening at, at sort of a more granular level uh, that we're not gonna cover new rules. We're gonna touch on one or two, but not not a ton of them. Uh, so these are, most of these are sort of bigger picture, bigger swings, so to speak, that were taken here sort of at the end of the administration. We're trying to decipher what this all means and, and think with a, you know, looking forward what this will all mean. The second thing is um, on the, on inauguration day, as is custom, when there is a change in power in the, in the White House, there was what's known as a regulatory freeze memorandum that was issued by the White House, by the chief of staff of the White House um, and the president's chief of staff. And that essentially says to all executive branch agencies, you know, put your pencils down. Uh, it, in, it's a little more particular than that. It's talking about rules uh, that are about to be published in the Federal Register that might have just been published, that have uh, not yet had a full effective date uh, come and go. Um, it basically, in this is very broad strokes, but it basically says, hey, uh, everybody should pause and consider um, before anything is further implemented. And in particular, you should pause if you don't have a presidentially appointed uh, agency head or department head in, in place yet. And so the cabinet is starting to be filled out. 
Um, there's, I, I believe Janet Yellen's probably going to be confirmed today. I think Tony Blinken at the State Department is probably going to be confirmed this week. Uh, there are more coming. Um, so that will be coming soon. But uh, for now, we're in a bit of a limbo period. So there, there is uh, a lot of gray area here. And not everything we're talking about falls within the memo. But just keep that in mind for context that some of these things potentially are impacted, at least indirectly, if not directly. And then more broadly, this is a true period of transition where I think everything is up for reevaluation. Uh, so that is so that much is, stuff happening. I mean, it was really hard to keep up just by email yeah. with all this stuff coming in, much less actually pay attention to it. Yeah, so I don't it was, envy the new administration. They're going right. to have a lot on their plate to review just it, from the last few weeks. It was an avalanche of stuff to, to, to go through. So, so without further ado, let's get, let's get right to it. And we're going to, again, we're going to try to whip through these pretty efficiently. So number one, let's start with Cuba. So on uh, January 12th, uh, the State Department uh, Secretary, outgoing, now former Secretary Pompeo, announced that Cuba was being added once again to the state sponsors of terror list. Uh, this is something that the Obama administration had undone they had delisted cuba about five, it was now five years ago i think it was 2015 when that happened uh in an attempt to normalize relations with cuba and obviously we've discussed a lot a great deal all of the efforts that were made by the trump administration to essentially undo unwind all of the relaxation of um of cuba sanctions and, and other cuba related um measures that the obama administration took so um this happened again with barely a week left in the administration uh many obviously i think see this as so it's interesting because i think there's as we've said there's always going to be people in the us and and in particular in, especially on the republican side of the aisle and, and the cuban expat community who are going to applaud sort of any harsh measures that are directed toward cuba but i think there are many who saw this as a bit of a cynical ploy by the state department to again tie the hands of the incoming administration the justification itself of why they were being re-added to the list was quite frankly pretty thin when it comes to how they were actually you know supporting how the state of cuba is supporting terrorism um and you know i think it's pretty clear the seams aimed at slowing the normalization of of uh, relations with Cuba, as you know, Biden has indicated he he wants to do. He wants to go back to um, to some of uh, the sort of Obama era course of potentially um, opening things up with Cuba again. Uh, and I will say that um, obviously there's no there's not necessarily any um, you know long term impediment to that happen. But I think this does as a practical matter slow things down considerably to take one one sort of recent example that's that's illustrative here sudan actually just came off the state sponsor of terror list at the end of last year um and that was sort of a long time coming because ofac sanctions had been released on had been uh, relaxed with respect to sudan in 2017 and it was just at the end of last year that they came off and now there have been some accompanying changes that have been made by bs relating to export controls and other things so in terms of the practical impact of this, how will this affect the way that people in the U.S. or outside of the U.S. interact with Cuba? I don't know that it will have much, but uh, certainly with respect to normalizing relations with Cuba for the new administration, it's just another it's just another hurdle. I don't know. Tim, your, yeah, your I thoughts don't, on that? I don't have much to add on that other than to say, you know, I I. I 
it is a big deal to add a country to this to the list of countries supporting terrorism. It, there's only four. There's, there's only, only four, four right now. And that's now, right? I mean, there were only three. There were three. In. Two weeks ago, there were only three. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, and I think part of the reason for that is that it, because it is, it, it is so consequential to add a country to this, to, to that list, because it, really affects not only what the US can do, but what, what countries around the world can do with the listed country, that it's generally been a very considered decision. And there's been a lot of evidence before a country goes on. Just in the same way, I mean, I will note that when President Obama took Cuba off, he, he actually didn't do it as part of the agreement with Cuba that started kind of the loosening. He The agreement actually allowed for a study period. And again, it was, I think, People thought it was a foregone conclusion, but I think people thought it was a foregone conclusion then because there really hadn't been much evidence for a long time that Cuba had been engaging in support of terrorism. And so the, the foregone conclusion was we're going to study it, but um, unless we find some evidence, we're going to take them off the list. Here, it just, as you said, the, desert, the, 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 the reasons given were so slim and you know whatever else you think of Cuba you know, supporting global terrorism is not really what they appear to be engaged in. And so it, it just does make the whole process seem more political and, and for that reason, less trustworthy than it had been. Now, there's so much happened at the end of the Trump administration that um, will be brought into question that I'm not sure this is going to get a, a high profile, but it is. it was, I think, both disappointing, but, but I also don't expect it to last long. Yeah, there is going to there is going to have to be a, you know, there's a formal review process and there's congressional notification. There's all kinds of kind of hoops you have to jump through to, to do this if they're going to take them back off. But again, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's just in the priority structure. How how high a priority is this going to be? It's just another perhaps, again, delay uh, to possibly putting things back on a track to loosening or normalizing relations with Cuba, whereas Otherwise, perhaps the incoming administration would have moved a little more rapidly in that regard. So, so we'll keep an eye on that. But again, I think from a practical perspective, you know, there are certainly some kind of peripheral consequences. And as Tim said, I think it makes to the extent that there was comfort, perhaps, in dealing with Cuba, you know, at least outside of the U.S. Uh, around the world, perhaps this uh, takes away some of that comfort and perhaps heightens the risk that people will perceive in dealing with Cuba. But uh, it's, you know, it was already in a pretty risky bucket to begin with, with heavy restrictions. And so I think uh, it, it's, uh, you know, not, not, not a material change probably in that regard. So right. from a sa sanctions perspective, it doesn't make much yeah. difference. But. Yeah, yeah. So with that, let's pivot to number two and let's, let's do our first China topic. So the first China topic is the pronouncement from the, the outgoing Trump administration that uh, China is committing genocide with respect to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. And again, I mean, this, this was an announcement that, um, you know, in terms of immediate consequence, it's probably somewhat limited, particularly from a sanctions perspective, since there already is a Xinjiang province, or a, 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 there are sanctions with respect to what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um, there's an entire program. There's also the, the global Magnitsky sanctions. 
um, and that have been used to, to deal with what's happening in Xinjiang province. So from a sanctions perspective, probably not a huge change, but it was a final poke in the eye to China on the way out. Certainly is not going to help the Biden administration in terms of improving relations. This is one that I don't think that on either side of the aisle, there's a lot of controversy with respect to the the, the view that that what China is doing with respect to the Uyghurs uh, is is appalling and potentially genocide. Um, but this is a, an example of why they call it diplomacy and why when you speak carefully and and uh, try not to offend people that that is called diplomacy. That it is, um, you know, you. you China is a big country. They're a very powerful country. And labeling something genocide has consequences in, in the international proceedings. It has consequences from a, from a human rights and a, and a respect standpoint. And China is, whatever it's doing in Xinjiang, it's unlikely to be changed by this, but its behavior towards the United States is not likely to get better based on this announcement. And so, you know, I, obviously I'm not in favor of holding back and hiding when genocide is happening and being scared to call it genocide but you also want to try and make sure that if you're going to do that that it will you will get some good consequences from it and it's not clear to me what those consequences are going to be yeah i think just a couple of quick follow-on points on that i think this is just clearly and there's going to be a common theme when everything we talk about with china this is just clearly a move was clearly a move to just antagonize china and to i mean this is about as provocative a public pronouncement as the United States government could make with respect to China. Uh, and it is not, uh, as Tim said, it's not inconsistent with the views of uh, President Biden or incoming Secretary of State Blinken, who were both on the record as having essentially agreed with this assessment. Uh, and if anything, it's again, a, it seems a bit cynical in part because, you know, if, if John Bolton's memoir is to be believed, you know, President Trump was telling uh, Xi Jinping that it was what they were doing with the Uyghurs was exactly correct <laughs> and that it was a good job and it's exactly what I would do. And now here on the, you know, literally on the final day, there's, uh, you know, 180 degree about face and a condemnation of the harshest uh, sort. And so that I think is uh, that that I think is not lost on <laughs> on the Chinese and on many others uh, here. So but I think to Tim's point, one one final thought that I would have here is that, um, you know, the the statement that this that the secretary released sort of called on China to immediately release, you know, all prisoners in Xinjiang province, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, etc. That's obviously not going to happen. <laughs> um, but what they what is also being signaled there, I think, and perhaps what the new administration could actually leverage and, and t take uh, to their advantage is the idea that maybe this, along with some of the other things we're going to talk about, is a first step toward actually building some multilateral international pressure on China to perhaps get some kind of change in behavior. Because I think with, uh, you know, to date, understandably, just about everybody other than the U.S. has been just totally silent with respect to what's happening in Xinjiang, what's happening in uh, Hong Kong, what's happening in other sort of uh, facets of, you know, Chinese society right now with, with crackdowns and other, you know, potential human rights and anti-democratic practices. Uh, and this, I think, is it, it was sort of styled as, as it was to try to, you know, attract uh, perhaps more, uh, get some people on board to, to sort of, you know, uh, push this cause. And 
Um, you know, I mean, there was again in the in the statement they're they're equating this to, you know, Nazi concentration camps and 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 some of the darkest you know stuff that's ever happened in in modern history, and uh, that's no accident. And uh, you know, whether you uh, sort of approve of that language or think it's uh, sort of uh, accurate or not, I think it's that's I think what they're what certainly what they were going for and and again initial indications are that the incoming administrations not necessarily going to back away from that I I don't I don't know that they will perhaps play it up in the same way to poke China in the eye so vehemently so vigorously but I think it will it, it will be something that they will perhaps keep in their back pocket and maybe actually be able to use for some positive effect yeah I mean we'll see what happens I I will kind of just note in passing that the idea that the Trump administration's one of their last acts was to protect Muslim minorities um, from uh, discrimination seems a little bit out of character with the way that the Trump administration came into office. And so I think that that's probably part of the reason that that uh, they have not this has not been viewed as an action. Um, that is really directed towards uh, concern for human rights violations against Muslims, but but more concerned for um, poking China in the eye on the way out. But we'll see. Again, I, that that doesn't mean that they there wasn't some merit to what right. to what they were saying. It just it, the messenger was a little bit odd. Right. Just because you question you question the motives of the messenger doesn't necessarily water down the truth of the message. But uh, and to 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 pivot to our next topic, I think the same would apply here, which is uh, number three. We're going to talk about Hong Kong. So uh, in a in a very odd coincidence, on the same day that the capital riots broke out uh, again, uh, as has been widely uh reported, alleged, and now being considered by the United States Senate, incited by President Trump himself, uh, there were widespread arrests in Hong Kong of uh, politicians and democratic uh, protesters and sort of resi- this sort of Hong Kong resistance uh, element. And uh, so there was, this is very much in line with what we've seen already now under the national security law there and what we, what people sort of feared would be coming when China passed the national security law um, last year, and uh, you know there there were a, a smattering of designations that came out a few days after this under um, EO one three nine three six, which was of course put out uh, when we discussed at length a few months ago targeting um, these anti-democratic uh, repressive uh, practices in Hong Kong. Uh, there was a joint statement made, again, to, to talk about multilateralism, there was a joint statement made between the US, Canada, Australia, and the UK sort of condemning what um, the authorities were doing in Hong Kong with respect to uh, these re- sort of uh, opposition politicians and, and democratic uh, protesters and leaders. Uh, and so I think the only comment here really is, uh, you know, Again, given now that we have a an administration that is, uh, again, in much the same way that we, just with the Uyghurs, we have an administration coming in that I think is going to, um, by all accounts and by all indications, going to take sort of human rights sort of seriously for its own worth uh, and not necessarily uh, as a convenient kind of policy chip or bargaining chip. Um, are we going to see 
more aggressive tactics with respect to Hong Kong or are we going to see different tactics with respect to Hong Kong and the sanctions and authorities that are already there? Um, and again, the, the big question is what type of prospects are there for getting any kind of multilateral support for the U.S. approach, which, you know, we the U.S. was sort of first out the out of the box with, um, you know, to take a swing at, at China for its its uh, what it was doing in Hong Kong and the national security law. Is anybody else going to get on board? I mean, you know, public statement with with some of our closest allies. You know, that's nice, but what does that really mean at the end of the day? So, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, this is another area. It's a lot like the Uyghurs, where they're not necessarily wrong in terms of um, what they're saying, but they're but but the messenger itself is one where. Um, you know, when you when you express concern for human rights, it's kind of hard to say, you know, we're concerned when our enemies engage in human rights violations, but we're totally fine with it when we do it or when our friends do it. And so so it doesn't it, it the, the message just doesn't resonate as strongly. That said, what's happening in Hong Kong is very troubling. And um, I think the Biden administration, it's a it's an issue that the Biden administration is going to need to deal with. You know, we've talked in in prior episodes about how I'm not convinced that sanctions is the way to go when it comes to China, because when you've got a country that big, sanctions are are not a very powerful tool. They're certainly one to have in your toolkit, but but this is an issue that I think goes a lot further when through diplomatic means and sanctions as a last resort rather than sanctions as a first resort with no diplomacy going on at all. Right. And I think that would be much more consistent with what the approach we would expect to see from this administration is that, uh, you know, we again, this may be a ways off. There's going to be a lot of, uh, I think, um, uh, there's going to be a feeling out period here in these initial months with China. There's a lot of we haven't even talked about the the Chinese blocking statute, which we're not going to really have time to get into on this episode, but that's another big issue that's kind of coming back, you know, aimed back at the U.S. By the way, a number of sanctions levied against U.S. officials on the last day or the first day of the Biden administration as a nice um, parting shot by China, Um, you know, as again, the U.S. largely, the U.S. officials largely sort of shrug that off as symbolic, but uh, nevertheless, there's there's a lot more uh, there's a lot more to sort of unpack there. And this is this is going to be a key thread. And, and so we're, we're going to keep watching. And, and I agree with Tim that sanctions first might not be the might not be the policy of the new administration. So we'll, we'll see what, what happens. That being said, the tool is there if and if and if sort of perpetrators and others are known to have been behind things. then I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see kind of a steady drumbeat of designations going forward. Um, so with that, let's let's uh, pivot away from China. We will come back to China, but we're trying not to do half an hour straight of China today. So let's go back. Uh, let's go to Iran and uh, check in with Iran and see what happened in the in the waning weeks here with Iran. I mean, it seems like every 20 minutes you'd get another email from OFAC sanctioning somebody else in Iran. I mean, I think they were down to the to the to the very bitter end looking for unsanctioned entities in Iran that they could add to the sanctions list. And it it just, this one, uh, unlike some of the other 
the, some of the other actions where, you know, with respect to the Uyghurs and with respect to Hong Kong, there is some there there in terms of the underlying foreign policy dispute. And certainly there is some there there with respect to the general foreign policy positions of the U.S. and Iran being relatively antagonistic. So I'm not saying, you know, there's nothing about what the Iranian government is doing that would warrant sanctions. But what I am saying is, these don't seem motivated by any new behavior by Iran or by any kind of, um, you know, classic sanctions policy at all. These new designations look more, even more than the others, like an attempt to build up as many hurdles as possible to diplomatic action by the Biden administration in, with respect to reinstituting the, the nuclear deal. And on that yeah, I point, think I, yeah, go ahead. Was, no, sorry, please go, ahead. go, go no, ahead. I was going to say, I was going to say, yeah, I think the die was really cast on this a few months ago when it was clear that uh, there would be no second Trump, uh, there would be no 2.0 Trump term. And they, they took some actions in the fall that we discussed and in the early uh, part of the winter. And now this is just more of the same. I totally agree. There was there was one action, one set of designations that were um, targeted at foundations affiliated with the Supreme Leader, which is, you know, a little bit of a more provocative, another poke in the eye, if you will, sort of sort of targeted at the highest levels to perhaps uh, leave an even more bitter taste in the mouth of the Iranian leadership to prevent perhaps ever sitting back down with the US or the uh, JCPOA, the other JCPOA parties to try to get back into a nuclear deal. But but I, I agree. I think this was this was just sort of just spinning out the same type of uh, actions that we've seen for, you know, months and years now uh, targeting Iran. Yeah, I mean, the one the one thing that I was going to add to this is that it does create a huge level of complexity in terms of re-entering the nuclear deal. Because as, as we know, at the time of the nuclear deal, one one aspect of that deal was removing a bunch of SDNs. And, and you know, as, as I, I'm sure you know better than me, each SDN removal was the subject of likely extensive negotiation. And so, so you know, and there, there were hundreds of them at the time of the JCPOA that were removed. Now, one impediment to re-entering the nuclear deal is to take all of the designations that occurred over the past few months and find out which ones, you know, are are were were made for reasons that were serious enough that that you wouldn't remove them as part of entering and in, back into the JCPOA. So you got to go through each one of these SDN designations and decide was it a was it a real designation made for terrorism reasons that we really this entity is one that even if we do re-enter the nuclear deal that we're going to fight to keep on the SDN list or do you just remove them all which I don't think you can. I think and so you know, to the extent that the Biden administration is still invested in in getting back into the nuclear deal, and I noted that the the president's press secretary in her first press conference reiterated that the administration is committed to that, and that in its discussions with its European allies, it expected the European allies to bring that up as a priority for Europe. And to the so so if they're doing that, this really does create meaningful hurdles to going back into the nuclear deal because every designation over the last few months is a is a lot more work because it's not just a matter of kind of stripping them all off the list. You've got to figure out who stays and who goes. And if, if you figure out that some you want some to stay, that's going to create an, a, an additional negotiation with Iran if they decide that, well, no, you know, their position is that we should go back to exactly the SDN list that, that existed at the time of the nuclear deal and nothing more. And so, so I, I, 
I, I don't think you should underestimate what they're doing in terms of creating hurdles. These are real hurdles. Yeah, I don't. So just my just last thought on this is I, I wouldn't say that anything that happened in the last few weeks with respect to Iran creates any kind of real structural impediment there. We all know we all know that there is going to be a lot of things have to align if if there's going to be reengagement and some kind of a JCPOA plus that gets negotiated. Uh, we talked about this at length on a prior episode. I would I agree with you though completely that this is just sort of lengthening perhaps the it's heightening the difficulty, lengthening the time period that would likely be necessary or to be able to work out all of the all of the details that you would need to work out in order to uh, even have a framework of some kind of a deal. Uh, you know, in place. And so to the extent that they have made it harder, the outgoing administration has made it harder. I think they probably have. Uh, have they made it impossible? I don't think they have. Uh, and, and again, if um, if the, you know, the Biden administration is signaling very clearly that to European partners and to Iran itself, quite frankly, that it, it wants to, it does want to re-engage, uh, then I think that is certainly on the table. It, it may, again, it may take some time, but I, I would, I, I think that is certainly on the table still. Yeah, it's going to be it, it is going to be a, you know, and time is of the essence because there's an election coming up in Iran in a few, you know, only a few months now at this point. And if there's going to be a new JCPOA, it's likely going to have to have to happen in advance of that election. Yeah, which seems hard to imagine that that's going to yeah. happen in the next six months. Uh, so anyway, let's pivot away from Iran. Let's go back to one of our favorite topics, which we have been, I think, in some ways eagerly awaiting talking about more because it's one that we have, we spend a lot of time thinking about and have spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about the last few years, which is Russia. And so uh, I want to, so for those who are not following this, which I presume m- most are, there was, um, you know, a pretty significant event that has now happened just recently, which is uh, the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, returned to Russia uh, after, recall, we discussed this last year when he was poisoned, uh, and there were some talk of sanctions uh, targeting Putin and and others around the the poisoning and presumed, uh, you know, role that Russian leadership played in that. Uh, And he returned to Russia and was promptly imprisoned and has now set off a wave of protests across the country. He's been encouraging his supporters to uh, take to the streets and protest. There were violent crackdowns on uh, those protests this past weekend, uh, not surprisingly. And uh, so it's unclear sort of how that's all going to play out, whether or not this is going to have any lasting impact. But it seems now more than even during, even at the time he was poisoned, it seems uh, certainly in the EU, there is more outrage about what is going on and more, it seems, uh, willingness at least being discussed, again, in, within EU parliament, within, I've seen news reports from a variety of EU countries suggesting that top leadership is in favor of uh, sanctioning uh, Putin and others responsible for uh, Navalny's imprisonment. Um, and I think also importantly, there's some revived talk perhaps of taking some uh, stand or some final steps to try to prevent Nord Stream 2 from being completed uh, as a result as well, because um, it's, you know, as we've said in the past, this is an area and a topic that where there's just a lot of diverging thought on this between the U.S. and its allies, especially Germany. But it seems from what's 
being reported at least that there might now be more willingness to try to use that as a stick here and try to uh, stop the final phase of Nord Stream 2 from proceeding. Um, I should also add that uh, as we have been saying, we fully anticipate and, and all indications you know, with public statements are that the new administration, if there's going to be anyone that they are going to go after more harshly with sanctions, it's Russia. And we already saw at the at the very end of the of the prior administration, the very last day, we saw some we saw the I think it was the very first sanctions under Section 232 of Katsa targeting um, at one Russian entity and a vessel related uh, to Nord Stream 2 activities and pipeline activities. And then we know big, big, big issues uh, for the incoming administration. Russian election interference in the most recent election. We're not talking about 2016. We're talking about last year, and the massive uh, cyber intrusion uh, of solar winds that resulted in state and local governments, uh, state and federal government agencies all over the place being infiltrated uh, by, uh, and it has now been attributed to Russia. And so. Presumably, there is more coming on that, and and with the various sanctions tools available, the cyber EO, the election interference EO, other things, those will be sanctions related. Uh, and I would I would not be surprised if those are some of the first things we see from this administration in terms of kind of bold sanctions action. So, a lot going on there. Um, you know, a few a few kind of final uh, you know salvos from the old regime, and then uh, it sort of I think tees things up for the new administration to really you know, tack hard toward Russia. So what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? I predict that in 2021, we will talk about Russia on this podcast more than we talk about China. And, wow, and the bold. The, bold. It's very bold, but, it, but the reason, I, the, reason the stars are aligned. And, and what I mean by that is, on the one hand, um, you do have Russia is kind of a more compelling target for sanctions than than China is because the economy is smaller and there are various pressure points that you can put on it in a, it, that that exist that you know China doesn't really have because its economy is so much bigger and so much less connected to the West than Russia is. Second, I think you're going to have a lot more multilateral consensus about um, trying to stop Russian aggression. You know, one area where there's not consensus is the, the Nord Stream pipeline. But even there, you have, you know, large consensus except for Germany. Um, and, and at least when Navalny was poisoned originally, Germany was even talking about sanctions and, and not finishing the Nord Stream pipeline. So I think there's going to be a lot of consensus from a multinational perspective as to new sanctions for, for China or for Russia. And, and, and based on all of those actions that you talked about, not just the human rights issues with respect to Navalny, but uh, the, the, the fact that we had the biggest cyber attack in U.S. history at the U.S. government and that it was attributed to Russia, and that is like a page four story at this point, tells you how much craziness was going on in the past few weeks, but it will come yeah. back. That will, yeah. that unlike a lot of these issues, um, you know, the I thought the attack on the Capitol was a real big issue that will will live beyond 2021. But I I think the cyber attack is as well, and the election interference is as well. And those are that that sort of behavior is exactly the type of conduct that sanctions were designed to go after. So I think Russia sanctions multilateral and and even bipartisan. I mean that's the other thing about Russia is that 
the Trump administration was kind of an island unto itself when it came to Russia, where it really, for whatever reason, didn't seem to want to go after Russia aggressively with sanctions. But the Republican Party and most of the Republican Senate felt very differently, which is why we have Katza. And the Democrats, if anything, are even more Russia hawks than the Republicans on these issues. So I just think from a, you know, from a partisan perspective, from an international perspective, and just from a pure conduct and the efficacy of sanctions perspective, Russia is a much better target and a much more likely target for the next year. Yeah, I totally agree on the cyber intrusion. I mean, that is the, the full scope and scale and damage on that is just barely beginning to be understood right now. And so there's going to be a lot more on that in the coming months. And I agree completely that we're going to hear, I think there's going to be a lot more Russia in the news this year uh under this administration so um so yeah we shall we shall, i'm gonna we'll, we'll we'll turn back in december to see if you're right that we did more russia versus china this year but um that may or may not be true i i'm still skeptical i think there's still gonna be a lot of china but uh but yeah i think it's i think it's a fair uh i think it's a fair prognostication we we shall see um, so with that, let's turn to a, a country where I'm fairly confident will not be the number one topic on um, on embargo this year, which is Yemen. So, but but we do have a, a pretty notable uh, development in Yemen that we do want to cover. I think we have consensus that Yemen will not be the well, the lead story on embargoed in 2021. No, but I don't. But it, it is a story be, no. now. Uh, and again, this was more. Um, of the the Trump administration on its way out doing things to kind of placate friends and antagonize enemies and you know the houthis are viewed as a you know one side of the civil war in yemen but also as the iran proxy side and so i think part of the the yemen designation of the houthis which is you know one side of what is in essence at least in part of yemen you know the 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 functional government um is is uh is is you you need to understand that to understand where these sanctions are coming from. The administration on the way out put um, the Houthis onto the the foreign terrorist organization list, and and specifically, um, it was a, a Houthi group called Ansarallah, um, which is the name of the group that was designated. Now, you know, to their their credit, at the t- same time that they did put the Houthis onto the the FTO and the SDGT list, they also issued a number of general licenses that allowed for interaction with Ansarallah um, in Yemen. Certainly with uh, NGOs are allowed to interact. There's a humanitarian exception in terms of interaction. And that was a big deal. I, I, I think I mentioned to you right before we started taping that I actually have had some questions related to, to the um, designation come up, and the general licenses have have answered those those questions um, in part because that's really from the West perspective, it's kind of humanitarian aid and working with non governmental organizations that is really the activity that's taking that's going on. And these general licenses are pretty broad in the sense that they mention Ansarallah and transactions with Ansarallah and allow most of these. Um, transactions to continue to go on. So, so I think it was a, certainly a symbolic issue in terms of kind of punishing the Iranian side of the Ye- Yemeni civil war. But to to OFAC's credit, that they they did at least it, it, at least on the surface seem to uh, exempt out most of the transactions that the humanitarian transactions that had been taking place um, both before and after the designation. 
Yeah, I think I do think you're exactly right that most mostly this is um, I mean, sadly, this is a lot about Iran and um, and not as much about Yemen and the and the um, the population of Yemen who's suffering through the the civil war there. Um, the, you know, a couple quick things to note. One is incoming Secretary of State Blinken has already said, I think said during his confirmation hearing, uh, yeah, we're going to we're going to review this. <laughs> we're going to review this. This will be a priority to review this. And the implication is that this is probably going to be undone. Uh, at, at, you know, again, this there will be hoops to jump through. It won't happen overnight, but this will in all likelihood be undone. And the clear message is that this just seems from the incoming administration or the current administration's perspective just to be very counterproductive. And again, just kind of an, a needlessly antagonistic move, in particular, not just for the humanitarian aspect of this, which Tim already covered, but to the extent that there was a hope to perhaps broker peace talks or figure out a way to bring the the conflict to an end in Yemen, this just makes it that much more difficult. And so if if this were if these you know labels designations were to be removed, that might um, you know pave pave the path toward actually being able to broker some kind of a, a peace uh, in Yemen and and without um, and without sort of reassessing this move, it'll just be that much more difficult. So again, it is this is about as clear a clear an example of let's tie the hands and make it more difficult um, to for the incoming uh, for the new guys to to do what they want to do here and um, and I think uh, you know there's also been related to that also is the fact that it's been made very clear from the new administration that they are no longer going to be pledging support to the Saudi efforts to try to uh, sort of intervene in the conflict and they're going to sort of walk away from from that prior position. And, and, and so again, I, I think diplomacy is the way forward here. It seems that's clearly, I think what the U S current U S administration wants, but I, and now it's just a couple of additional hurdles and likely additional time to sort of undo what just, what just happened, uh, literally on, uh, you know, uh, just hours before the, uh, the Trump administration was, uh, was leaving town. And, and just to be clear about this, because it's kind of been a theme so far of our of this episode, it's not unusual for an administration to try and lock in some of its policies on the way out. What I view as unusual, at least in the sanctions context, is kind of all of these actions that don't seem designed to lock in particular policies, but just seem designed to make life more difficult for the incoming administration. And so, so like they don't seem to have a particular purpose other than complexity. I, I will carve out the nuclear deal from that because I do think that the administration had a policy that they didn't want the nuclear deal. And so throwing up barriers to getting out of the nuclear deal, I, I don't think is unique to the Trump administration. But some of these actions, and particularly this one, just seem for to, to accomplish nothing other than to just create a, a, more items on the to-do list for the Biden administration to undo. Right. Or to, or to just sort of plainly try to antagonize certain, you know, adversaries, foreign adversaries, or to curry favor with perhaps, uh, you know, certain countries. So yeah, it's, it is, it, Tim is right. This is not completely unprecedented. This always happens to some degree at the end of it, of, uh, when there's a party change in, in the White House. But uh, I think the degree to which we saw it, and also, as reported, it seems much of this was happening without the president's actual involvement. It was much, it was, it was 
the Secretary of State who was mostly making these decisions, it seems somewhat unilaterally or perhaps after having a bit of a, a power struggle at the cabinet level on some of these decisions. And these are things that have been kind of simmering for a long time and that they, in the last couple of weeks, it, it just seems, and again, this is as has been reported in multiple media outlets, uh, he just made some decisions about things he was going to do and, and just went ahead and did them. So uh, that is certainly a little unusual, but in any event, um, so let's move forward. Now we're going to um, tack back to China uh, we're going to take it home with China. We have three topics left. Um, then the, the last, the next one is we're back to communist Chinese military companies and the, the executive order uh, targeting publicly traded security. So this is one we've obviously talked about quite a bit already uh, on the last. So since our last episode was recorded, there was an amendment, there was an amended executive order that attempted to clear up a couple of aspects of the original executive order. And they mostly were targeting the divestment rules and also the the scope of what constitutes a transaction as, as well as a few other things. Um, what has become very clear now based on that action, related FAQs that have been issued and questions that we have gotten from clients and discussions that we have been part of with across the broader trade nerd community is that um, this one really is a head scratcher. I think I think we may be underestimated at first uh, how difficult in practice this might be to abide by. And, and I think that there so there remain some very, very serious questions about um, you know what happens during the divestment window, which the current divestment window for any uh, CCMCs that were already, that were on the list uh, kind of originally is November of this year, and then it's 365 days after placement on the list. Um, this this whole for those who aren't tracking, and we talked about this a little bit last time, this idea of close matches and having to deal with close matches and what that means, because there seems to be some conflicting guidance as to how you treat close matches to companies that are on the CCMC list, and that is really creating a lot of confusion. Not surprisingly, this, there's there's really nothing quite like that in the OFAC world. Now, in in other screening contexts, obviously, there you have to deal with you have to deal with that, obviously. But um, this is really creating a lot of confusion. What happens with non-U.S. subs? What happens with U.S. people who are working for non-U.S. companies? What happens with um, you know other kinds of investments, options contracts, and futures contracts, and things like that that don't seem to be squarely addressed by the guidance and the and the text of the EO? So, I think the only thing I really want to say here, and the only question I really want to pose to you is, I think we had presumed to date this is a this is sort of a framework and a um, executive order that the incoming administration would probably keep. They might modify, but they would probably keep. What do we think now? Do we think that? Do we think now that there's maybe, given that there, I don't want to say some cracks showing, but there's there's obviously, I think this is not sort of um, being rolled out or implemented in a in a sort of terrifically smooth manner in part because this is a very this is a very unorthodox program it is something that is not like anything else really in the OFAC portfolio so what do we think the prospects are that this just gets scrapped or changed substantially that there's there's a new EO that comes in to supersede and there's something totally different that we see here what what do we what how do we handicap that at this point well it's such a mess and so i i do think that it's going to have to be cleaned up and 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 to start with this close matches i think that that problem because i've given a lot of thought to that problem that problem strikes me as one that kind of 
stems from the way that this program was created. So generally, you know, when there's a treasury program, OFAC creates the list and then enforces the list through rules that we all kind of, you know, at least the sanctions nerds understand their screening software that is designed to, to catch, you know, listed parties. And there is the 50% rule that people can understand. This program started with a list created by the Department of Defense. And the list at the time it was created had very minimal consequences, certainly no sanctions consequences when the list was created. And so that, and, and I think you pointed this out on one of the earlier episodes, Brian, but that list was very imprecise. So it had things like Huawei, which is not, doesn't mean anything as a corporate matter. It just says Huawei on it. From an OFAC perspective, you don't know what to do with that because there is no, there is no match. If, if you're dealing with Huawei International Limited at a precise address and you're looking at a list that just says Huawei, you, you, there's no match, but it's a close match because you're dealing with an, a Huawei entity. And so they, they created a program from a list that OFAC didn't create. And based on that, they had to go through and try and figure out a way to, to essentially um, modify that list to, to work for a, a treasury program. And so I think it started from kind of a stupid place and has led to a lot of confusion. And I think they're going to need to, to really go back and um, fix it and, and really think about this a little bit more carefully than they did when they put this order out. And, it, and they may decide that they want to use some form of this program, but I, I, I don't think it's going to be um, kind of this slap together um, mix of principles from multiple agencies that aren't usually used to work working together. Yeah, I mean the other thing is no, I think that's right, and they have they have obviously they have tried to kind of clarify the list so far, and the, there were promises of you know a lot more coming. There have been other um, signals and other sort of pronouncements out there about uh, you know if, what happens with subsidiaries and affiliates, and the, there was a. State Department had a list of affiliated companies that they put out at some point, which created even greater confusion for people. Uh, and so, yeah, I think we have to keep our eye on that. The other thing I would say, too, to keep in mind here is that because of the nature of these restrictions and because of the nature of the global financial system, I mean, we I mean, we have gotten and I'm sure for most trade nerd counselors, we have got I mean, I've gotten questions from all corners of the earth about this because people, if you run across an entity that's a close match or an actual match and, and you say, well, wait, are you, I, I got a question from a client in a, I won't say the country, but in a, in a country where they were asked, you know, it's headquartered in that foreign country. And, and the question was sort of, are you a U.S. person for purposes of this order? Can we still, can we still deal with you if we're clearing trades and doing these other things? And there's a lot that's already been said about that and what U.S. persons can do and can't do. But I think this is, it is just creating such confusion. And I think what we have seen in the past and what we are seeing now is as soon as the players in the financial sector, especially outside the U.S., get spooked and get worried that they're going to be potentially on the hook for, you know, causing a violation or for themselves, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, getting into some kind of legal or regulatory trouble, then they just try to run as far as they can in the opposite direction. And because the gray area here is so large and kind of poorly defined at this point i think that's what we're seeing right now and it's just a lot of confusion and a lot of that and so for any of you out there who are who are wrestling with this trying to understand what it means don't feel bad if you're confused 
you know, many, many, many folks in the U.S. who spend a lot of time thinking about this, not just ourselves, many others um, are, I think, have their own views, but they have not quite been confirmed, validated, or clarified with OFAC at the moment. So we're hopeful that at some point in the next few months, there will be some clarifications if there's not a full kind of, you know, reset on this program. But in any event, I think that's, this has just become even more clear in the past few weeks that this is one that needs some, needs some help, I think. Along with the, you know, the International Criminal Court uh, program. This is one where the the order is so weird that they're going to have to do something about it. Although they, this, I think, but for what the Trump administration did, this was is not an issue that the Biden administration would have been interested in really um, wading into. But for the fact that they've got to do something because these programs are so odd and not very well thought out. Yeah, and again, a key thing to remember, as as we have said, and we said on the last episode, and we've say a lot. The underlying concerns from a policy or national security standpoint, not necessarily in dispute or controversial. The idea that the U.S. is concerned about civil military fusion in China, that the U.S. sort of U.S. either U.S. technology being stolen or, you know, sort of sent to China uh, and, you know, U.S. funds being, uh, you know, funding that effort and in some way direct or indirect not that controversial. That's kind of a pretty bipartisan cut and dry issue. The means and the methods to address that, very, very different. And so uh, I agree with Tim that I don't think we would have seen something like this from a Biden administration uh, if you know this was really being kicked around six months ago or a year ago, but, but we'll see now that it's there, we'll see whether they keep it, whether it goes or whether it gets modified uh, in, in some substantial way, which I think is, is certainly a possibility. So, so we'll, we'll stay tuned on that. Um, all right. So final two topics. So, um, or let's turn now back to, so last fully China topic, which is, um, Taiwan and the South China Sea. And I'll throw it back to Tim for that. So, you know, to continue on our theme, these are two real, um, hot, hot points in terms of, diplomatic relations between the U.S. and China. You know, with respect to Taiwan, the U.S. has watched what happened in Hong Kong, um, and and I think there is significant concern that uh, China will try to do the same thing with respect to Taiwan. Uh, and and so Taiwan has become a hotspot issue, um, largely, I think, related to the what happened in Hong Kong. The South, and also related to what's happening in the South China Sea. I mean, China is essentially trying to establish dominance and almost exclusivity over part of the South China Sea. It's building islands in, you know, what otherwise was just uh, international waters, and then claiming territory, and then claiming, you know, the the domestic shoreline around those islands, which really is reducing the size of the South China Sea that is international waters, or at least from a Chinese perspective it's doing that. And both of those policies are sufficiently controversial that uh, that they're, they're, I don't think there's any dispute that the U.S. has interest in taking some form of action. What the U.S. did with respect to Taiwan as the administration wound down was to essentially um, change the rules with respect to Taiwan because on the one hand, there's the concern for Taiwan's uh, autonomy, for lack of a better term. On the other hand, there's the recognition that this is a, a dispute mostly between China and Taiwan. And while we're interested in, in that dispute being resolved peaceably, uh, we, we 
also recognize that it's in China's interest um, as well to, to, you know, China actually has legitimate foreign policy interests related to Taiwan, that it should be working out peacefully with, with Taiwan. So what the U.S. had done previously was essentially tried to stay out of that and tried to not antagonize China. And there were certain policies that it took with respect to Taiwan um, that were designed to essentially stay out of the dispute between Taiwan and China. And the administration, as it wound down, took actions to try and wade back into that dispute in terms of you know recognizing various aspects of Taiwanese uh, autonomy that previous administrations had really stayed away from. South China Sea what's happening, and, and it wasn't just at the end of the Trump administration, it was really within the past year, but there were some big actions that were taken at the end. You know, we were making, the Commerce Department was making entity list designations of entities that were taking actions in the South China Sea uh, to further Chinese policy to essentially reclaim or claim some of those waters as their own. Um, and the most recent and I, I think was the biggest was that the the Chinese national offshore oil company CNOC um, was placed onto the entity list near the end of the Ch Trump administration based you know, according to the designation on its actions in the South China Sea, but obviously CNOC is much, much bigger than that. And so that designation in particular has a, a huge uh, consequence in the US, particularly in the oil and gas industry. And, and I assume you are, because I know that I am seeing a lot of questions about what happens now that CNOC is on the entity list. And so, you know, another area where there's legitimate foreign policy disputes going on um, and that the Biden administration is likely to agree on the general policy with the Trump administration, but the mechanics in terms of how to address it. There was a lot of kind of shouting and and shouting and and kind of breaking things on the way out uh, in both of those areas, but not um, a lot that is likely to have changed China's behavior or policy towards Taiwan or the South China Sea. Yeah, I think just just a couple of very quick points on that. So I think with the South China Sea, we, we talked about this a few months ago when there were the first kind of wave of entity listings that were related to conduct in the South China Sea. Sinoc is, is a continuation of that. As, as Tim said, I think that's probably the most significant one thus far. Uh, I think we're going to see more action there, both with entity listings. It's it's possible that there could be some um there could be some sanctions related actions that are being that uh, the new administration decides to take with respect to that. I'm not exactly sure on what grounds yet, or maybe we'll see some we could see a new program that's that's targeted to that. I don't know. Uh, we, we will see. But uh, I think that that is going to continue to be a, a big issue and, and sort of maybe rise up the uh, priority list in terms of the China hot button issues with respect to Taiwan. I mean, this was if anything is um, just sort of a bald-faced attempt to antagonize China, uh, you know, kind of normalizing relations with Taiwan or, or scrapping the, the decades-old, you know, contacts policy that the U.S. has, the U.S. government has with respect to Taiwan, which is what uh, the Secretary of State did about 10 days before the end of the administration, is is a great example of that and there was purported to be a an in-person meeting that was going to happen between a u.s official and and a taiwanese official and then i think there was uproar after that and that that got scrapped and there was a telephone call or something thereafter but i mean that was just a pretty clear uh antagonistic move to try to 
uh, to try to, you know, set China on edge. And uh, the, the interesting question will be, what does the Biden administration do? What does the incoming secretary of state do? Do they revert back? Pro probably not, because, I mean, <laughs> they may actually take this one and sit on it as a piece of leverage and say, you know, if there's going to be if there's going to be some negotiations at some point with China relating to trade or other things, uh, you know, this I'm sure will be a talking point will, will come up in those bilateral talks. Uh, I don't know that it's something that will just be given away for free. Uh, so in all likelihood, it'll, it may very well kind of stay undone, but per perhaps not be observed. Uh, that, that would be my suspicion, but, but we'll see. Uh, but, but again, I think this is just another in the sort of, in the, the tip for tat uh, that the U.S. has been trying to play with China for the last few years, in particular, I think this is just another, just another example of that, and and again another sort of provocative move that was designed to really just make make China furious, and I think mission accomplished. And we'll see what happens uh, based on the public statements that are, that were made, and we'll see what happens now uh, once the new team is in at the State Department and, and fully uh, has a chance to think through the repercussions of this and how they want to handle it. Um, and so with that, we are we're coming to a, cl a close here. We got one topic left, uh, final topic. And this one is it, is, it is broader than just China, although it is a lot about China, which is the, on the last day, of the uh, of the Trump administration, the Commerce Department issued an interim final rule relating to securing the information and communications technology and services supply chain. So if you recall, this is the executive order that was issued in May of 2019. This was this is the same executive order that is cited as the uh, underpinning and the authority for the WeChat and TikTok orders, uh, the Alipay and uh, WeChat Pay uh, orders that we've spent a lot of time talking about. Uh, and so there was a proposed rule that got put out in late 2019 and a request for comments. And essentially what is happening here for people who haven't, and I'm not going to go into this, we're not going to go into this in depth because I know that we will come back to this at some point. Um, but to summarize in very broad strokes, because I think this is the first time we've really talked about it on the pod, is essentially what has happened here, what, what this interim final rule sets out is essentially an entirely new regulatory regime. It is sort of a CFIUS-like structure and regime that is now in place that allows the Secretary of Commerce to review certain information and communications technology and services transactions that impact the, the ICTS supply chain. Uh, and if they involve foreign adversaries, and the foreign adversaries are spelled out. And of course, the first two at the top of the list are China and Russia. It's China, Russia, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and the Maduro regime. Not, not Venezuela, the Maduro regime. So six entities, six countries in all. Uh, and so obviously China and then to, to a lesser extent, Russia, I think, are the, are the top two uh, here in terms of relevance and frequency with which these are going to be impacted. So this this order, this interim final rule lays out this, again, this regulatory regime where the Secretary of Commerce can review covered ICTS transactions. Again, covered transactions is it sort of in the CFIUS vernacular, very similar. Uh, and there's a variety of criteria that have to be met to, to constitute an ICTS transaction that's capable of being reviewed. And if it can be, and if it's within the Secretary's power to review, it can be prohibited or mitigated or modified in some way, just just as with CFIUS, essentially. So this is a pretty big deal 
no, make no mistake. Again, we're going to come back to this, so I'm not trying to get into it uh, in too much detail. This is a big deal. There is also contemplated a licensing process by which parties to a particular ICTS transaction could seek a license to proceed with their transaction. There are no rules for that right now. They are promised to happen by May. Um, now, here's my question to you, Tim. Um, with this in mind, the fact that this was literally dropped on the eve of the inauguration, it came out on January 19th. Um, the effective date on this is not uh, is two months off. It, it this definitely falls within the scope of the regulatory freeze memo. I don't, you know, so this will certainly be something that is going to get a lot of attention within the Commerce Department and elsewhere. And there was a request for comments from the public on the interim final rule in any event. So I know that there clearly there is going to be a lot of, um, I think, opportunity taken to voice concerns and criticisms of what is laid out here in the interim final rule. Um, what do we what do we foresee for this? Do we do we think that this is Again, this is a bit of a, this is a very kind of signature Trump administration effort, this ICTS supply chain executive order from last year. Again, underlying concerns, not controversial, means and methods of achieving those, perhaps up for a lot of debate, a lot of debate perhaps. And so what do we think the likelihood is that we ultimately see something along the lines of this interfinal rule to get put in place? Uh, and... Uh, you know, what were your just quick thoughts on on what this interim final rule uh, contained? You know, so I, I I definitely think that this idea is one that is likely to not be controversial. The idea that you know we really ought to review our supply chains with respect to this sort of technology to make sure that I mean it's the Huawei issue, right? I mean it's just writ large, which is that you've got these communications technology companies that essentially to the extent they infiltrate the supply chain, they create opportunities for hostile governments to um, obtain data and obtain other information about US persons and about the US that they they shouldn't have access to, or certainly we're worried that they're going to misuse. Or to and affirmatively so, sabotage, or to affirmatively sabotage critical U.S. infrastructure, which which is the other side of the coin here. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, so I, I think it's a real problem. I think that that it is a real problem that the U.S. government is concerned about whether housing that problem in the Commerce Department with CFIUS-like review powers is the w right way to go about it or whether there are other ways to go about it. I think that's really what the administration, the current administration is going to think about for the next couple of months. I don't have strong feelings on where it comes out, although I do am inherently skeptical of complex ideas and complex policies like this coming out on the last day of an administration. And I assume the, the new administration will probably have that same amount of skepticism. But I, in, in reading through the new program, I don't, nothing jumps out at me where I can say that's wrong and that's crazy. It just seems like um, a lot, a, a very complex program put in without a lot of thought and without a lot of fanfare at the very end of an administration is one that I will, you know, the more I think about it, the more likely I would be i think to find problems yeah i think i mean look there clearly was a lot of thought and time put into this just you know in in a certain vein but yeah i agree that i think this is one that's it's there's probably too much at stake here and this is too big of a problem to sort of leave to a an 11th hour you know rulemaking on this and so i, I do think this is one that's going to get a very serious uh fresh look and and where it comes out i'm not sure this is a good reminder to any of you out there who haven't looked at this to take a look at that interim final rule on the icts supply chain 
EO uh, implementation of that. And if you if you want to make your voice heard, you have until um, at least until sort of late March, you have about two months. So uh, plenty of time to sort of weigh in if you didn't weigh in the first time around now that it's a little more fully fully formed. So yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. I'm sure it's one we will be talking about again, but it'll probably be a few months before there's really more, more to report on that one. So uh, okay, with that, we're wrapped. That is a lot of topics in just over an hour. That's pretty pretty good for uh, your long your your uh, intrepid long winded hosts to uh, cover that much ground in just over an hour. So I would have guessed uh, like three hours for nine topics. I mean, that's it's pretty disappointing in a way. It's nine topics with like two or three subparts to each exactly. topic. So we probably exactly. covered about twenty different things. So yep. again, there was a lot we left out. Um, if anybody out there is uh, listening and is interested in anything else from the last few weeks that we didn't cover, please shoot us an email uh, or hit us up on Twitter or LinkedIn where we're, where we're always posting about our new uh, episodes when they go up. Uh, happy to try to tackle that the next time. I think I, we are still um, hoping to potentially get some guests uh, from other parts of the world to, to join us in the, in coming episodes to, to weigh in on kind of what they're expecting and what they, what the impact of the new administration may be uh, from their perspective, what issues are most heavily weighing on their minds at the moment. I think that will be coming in the next month or so. Um, we may very well be returning to sort of more of a traditional episode, depending on, you know, who knows, because as, as, as these things go, uh, you know, if, if uh, past holds, then something, something crazy will probably happen in the next like 48 hours. And then two weeks from now we'll be, uh, we'll have, we'll be fixated on that. But, um, but that is, uh, that is our show for today. Um, and uh, we, we thank everyone for joining us. Um, we hope everybody out there is staying safe. We hope you're wearing a mask now that that is mandated on federal property. We hope everyone is wearing a mask on federal property or otherwise. Uh, and until the next time, please stay safe and stay sanctions free. Stay sanctions free, everybody, and um, looking forward to a very boring 2021. Yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed. All right, thanks, everyone. Bye.